Amen. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to welcome you back to our evening service, the opportunity to continue to grow in our study of the Word together. Matthew chapter 5. I have slightly a little bit more time than last time, if you were here last time. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. We're going to pray, ask for God's grace on our time, and then we'll, draw, we'll uh, jump right in here into our topic this evening. Father, so thankful for your word. Your word is truth. It pierces our hearts. It reveals to us who we are as we see Christ face to face. I pray that we will be transformed into his likeness and that uh, you would, by grace, uh, accomplish a work in us for your kingdom. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last time we were together, we took most of our time dealing with the errant views on the Sermon on the Mount, how through the ages there have been people who have come face to face with the truth of what Christ is teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and in Luke as well, and how they've arrived at poor, if not very bad, conclusions about his teaching. The first one we talked about was the social gospel, the idea that all that we have to take from the Sermon on the Mount is that it's to make people better, it's to make humanity better. As humanity adopts the character traits that Jesus teaches here, the world becomes a better place, and we all say, that's not happening, right? The second one is this idea of legalism to where Jesus came not only to um, acknowledge the law of Moses, right, but then to take the law of Moses that had been corrupted by these scribes and Pharisees and give it a further merit or credit so that when we came face to face with the absolute impossibility of this law that then we'd see our need for the gospel, while it does accomplish that, that's not its main purpose as well. Then there's this idea, this third view we talked about, this dispensational view, which basically says it means nothing for today. All of the teachings of Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount are for a time where the kingdom of God will be set up, and that's still to come. And we, we looked at that in depth as well. That's not the case. We, we arrived at the conclusion that it is for today, it's for now, it's for us, and these are qualities that make up a kingdom citizen Today, what I'd like to do before we get into the first beatitude this, this evening is give you five quick reasons as to why we should study the Sermon on the Mount. Five quick reasons as to why you and I should try to live out and study the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is this. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. Reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. Christ died for sinners. Why, you might ask? Well, Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself up for us to redeem us all from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is Paul saying here? He means that Christ died in order that you and I might now live the teachings of Jesus. Christ has made it possible for us to actually adopt these ways. First Peter 2, 21 through 24, a little lengthier, it says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to he who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Why did all of this happen? Why did he go through all of this perfectly? Without giving up, it says here, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Three times in this text, Peter says that Christ died and the purpose was to enable us to live differently than we did before. Therefore, we can say, those who pursue the qualities of the kingdom here in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven, are doing so because of the sacrifice of Christ. He died to open the kingdom of heaven for us so that we could live in it today. So the first reason is it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. The second reason is it shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. The absolute necessity of the new birth. Nothing shows the need for the new birth so much as the Sermon on the Mount does. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, these beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, he says, I am undone. Folks, we need the new birth. Show me a man who claims that he is living up to the standards on the Sermon on the Mount, and I will show you a man who has either never read it, does not understand its teaching, or is lying. Because when you read this and you study these qualities, what Jesus is saying, and you place yourself in front of the mirror of the word, it will reveal your ultimate need of Christ. There's, there's no going around it. The Sermon on the Mount does not encourage righteousness in man apart from Christ. In fact, it condemns him for falling short of God's righteousness. It drives him to the cross. Paul says in Galatians 3, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And that's, that's speaking of the Old Testament law, right? Which is mostly external in its requirements, then it's all the more true here in the Sermon from Christ. The Sermon on the Mount calls for a pure righteousness that comes from a regenerated heart, a changed heart. When we see the teachings here, we realize we need the new birth. So, reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. Third, it points us to Christ. When you read it, you realize this is a really good reflection of one man, Christ himself. It brings us into a deep contact with the very person and nature of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount should be studied because like all of Scripture, it points to Jesus. And I think you'll see as we proceed through these chapters, these chapter 5, 6, and 7, you'll see that these teachings, and you begin to understand them, that without realizing, you're, you're coming into a deeper, closer connection with the person and nature of Christ. In other words, as, as one commentator said, the preacher of the sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. The preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is actually the sermon, is, is the one who's doing it. As we read it, we're going to be constantly brought into that close contact with him. The fourth reason is this. We study the Sermon on the Mount because I believe it furthers evangelism. It furthers evangelism. Living like a kingdom citizen serves as a tremendous means of evangelism. Why? Well, I want to suggest to you that as we live like what we're going to read and study through, as kingdom citizens, as we live like that, we promote evangelism by our character. What do I mean by that? Well, the world today is looking for and desperately needs. What it needs, in my opinion, is true Christians. Why do I say that? Well, 
in a world where everything seems to be fake and superficial, what is needed is a true standard of genuineness and authenticity. And the only standard of truth that is reliable is bound up in those who align themselves with the word of God. That's the standard. That's the source. It's God's truth. And what the church needs, as a result, what the church needs to do is not organize bigger and better and more profound evangelistic campaigns to attract people. The church, rather, needs to begin to live out the Christian life that's spelled out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because this is what will happen. To live out here on earth what kingdom citizens truly look like, right? The world will see it. They'll notice a difference. And it will serve as a means of evangelism as we live it out. The the final one is this. It indicates the way of blessing. If you're familiar at all with the terminology here in Matthew chapter 5, especially at the beginning, even though it is throughout the rest of the, the sermon, the word blessing comes up quite often. Why study this? Well, it indicates the way of blessing. The believer finds joy, bliss, and divine favor, not in conformity with the world's standards, but in harmony with the principles taught in this sermon. Jesus tells us this, it is the poor, not the self-reliant, the meek, not the proud, the merciful, not the cruel, the peacemakers, not the troublemakers. These are the ones who are called blessed. To be blessed of God is to receive spiritual benefit or divine favor from him that lasts forever. And this is what Jesus is attaching to the qualities that he's teaching in the sermon. Blessing, divine favor. When you and I come face to face with this sermon and all the implications and demands that it has, we see our great need and then we get it. What do we get? We realize that this is the direct road to divine blessing, what Jesus spells out here in this sermon. So those are five quick reasons. I'm sure there are more, but those are the ones that I kind of brought to the surface, reasons why I think we should study for the next weeks, months, however long it takes us to get through these chapters it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. The absolute necessity of the, new, of, of the new birth becomes a reality. It points us to Jesus constantly, and we need that. It'll further evangelism in our lives and in this church, in our community. And it indicates the way of eternal blessing. Some pretty profound reasons to, to, to search this out. Now again, if you're familiar at all with Matthew chapter 5, you know that what we're entering to here in the first several verses are what are referred to as the Beatitudes. The sermon begins with a section known as the Beatitudes or eight declarations or pronouncements of blessing that carry great weight for kingdom citizens. The word Beatitude here comes from the Latin word beati, referring to a state of happiness or bliss. The, the Greek word in the text is makurios, Uh, the, The word blessed there. And the word captures this idea of the ones who are fortunate and blessed recipients of God's favor and God's grace. Simply, this is a pronouncement of divine blessing on those who are included in the categories that Jesus lists out. The fullest meaning of this term has to do more with an inward contentedness that is not affected by circumstances. 
It's the state of joy that does not depend on physical, temporal circumstances. It is therefore more than an emotion and more than a feeling. Perhaps you in the past or maybe even have uh, defined this as, as happy, and I'll tell you why I think happy is not uh, necessarily the best representation. The formula here that Jesus gives us is the formula that says, blessed are the, blessed are the. We, we see that pattern that Jesus gives all throughout this chapter and then a couple times later in, in, in chapter 6 and 7. It's used repeatedly by Jesus in the sermon, and, but, but some modern translations have it instead as happy are the, as opposed to blessed are the, happy are the so-and-so, which in my opinion is, is, is a poor choice because it, it fails to include the intensely spiritual depth that is there, right, which is lacking in our English word happy. To be sure, happiness... As we would define it, happiness is an element of blessedness. By no means, though, it's an exhaustive one. To be blessed is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance, but a deep, supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that your life now is right with God. There is a much deeper uh, aspect to this than just that surface happiness. Blessedness is based on objective reality and made possible through the new birth. The word blessed occurs all throughout Scripture. We're going to look at a couple real quickly. The book of Psalms begins with a beatitude. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In this text, we see that the consequence of blessedness is not something he earns or he merits. It flows from his devotion to the word of God. In the New Testament, in Matthew as well, when Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she would be the mother of the Son of God, he said, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And when the pregnant Mary visits Elizabeth, the child in Elizabeth's womb does what? It jumps for joy at the approach of Jesus. And Elizabeth looks at Mary and he says this, and, she sa- and he says this to her. She says this to Mary. Blessed are you among women. Now although we as Protestants don't embrace the theology that gives worship to Mary as in the Roman Catholic Church, we certainly agree that one of the most singularly blessed women in history is the mother of Jesus. The New Testament was right when, when Elizabeth said to her, blessed are you. Because to be blessed here among women means to experience a singular benefit from the grace of God. To all who receive the visitation of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the state of blessedness will be the case. In Numbers chapter 6, we see a standard Hebrew benediction that is written in the poetic form that we call parallelism. It's a classic description of biblical blessedness. It comes in three separate verses, and each verse repeats itself with different descriptions referring back to the first stanza. Listen to this benediction. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. The same theme is all throughout the New Testament. Where the supreme blessing that we are promised is that in heaven we will see God's face, face to face. That is what's called the, uh, 
beatific vision, the vision that will overwhelm our souls with the highest degree of blessedness imaginable. So if you look at how, the, how Scripture uses this term blessed, I, I think you and I could arrive at a conclusion together. I'm not totally sure or satisfied with the, the word happy as, as it's translated in some ways to declare what Christ is trying to say here in the Sermon on the Mount. Because to be blessed of God is to receive eternal spiritual benefit. Divine bliss from Him. It's a bliss that lasts forever and it's beyond comparison. And this is what Jesus is pronouncing on the various groups here in the beginning of the sermon. Now as we dive headfirst into the Beatitudes, I want you to remember that these Beatitudes are progressive in nature. They build on each other. That one leads to the next in a logical succession. Being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude we should have to our sinful condition, which then should lead us to mourn, to be meek, to be gentle, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and have a peacemaking spirit. Verses 3 through verse 9. And then furthermore, a Christian who has all those qualities that Jesus lists out will be so drastically different from the world he's living in that his life will rebuke the world that's around him. So then verses 10 through 12, that will bring persecution from the world into his life. And verses 14 through 16, his life will have the opportunity to be salt and light and shine. There is a natural progression here to the teaching of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Look down, if you will, in chapter 5, verse 3, as we look into the first one that Christ lays out for us. He says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I just said, it's not surprising that this is the first one, because as we'll see, it's the key to all that follows. It's the foundation of all other graces. There's a very definite, definite order here, and this one must come at the beginning for a good reason. It's this, that there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from it. There's no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It's a fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and all other qualities, in a sense, result from this first one. Poor here is the Greek verb patos, excuse me, patohose, that means to shrink or cower or cringe. Perhaps you can picture this in, in scriptural times, so even as a beggar would have done in that day, right? The classic Greek word here used is to refer to a person reduced to absolute total destitution, who is crouched in a corner and begging. As he, as he holds out one of his hands, begging for alms, he often hides his face with the other hand because he's ashamed to be recognized. There are other uses of the word poor in Scripture, but their meaning is different from what Jesus is using here. The word penikros is the word that Jesus, uh, that is used of the widow that Jesus notices in the temple, who has those two small copper coins in her hands, and she delivers those as a gift, right? That's the word used for her there. She was poor, but she wasn't a beggar. She at least had some resources, but the one who's 
referred to as poor, as in patohose, the word poor here in Matthew 5, is someone who's completely dependent on others for sustenance. He has no means of self-support at all. So in essence, there is a sense of emptiness that categorizes this word. A complete emptying, pouring out of oneself. Which leads to this thought. You, you cannot be filled until you are first empty. You cannot fill a vessel with new wine that is partly filled with old wine, not until the old wine is poured out first. In other words, there must be a kind of emptying before there can be any filling of the Spirit. There always has, there's always been these two sides to the gospel. It's an essential part of the gospel that conviction must always go before what? Conversion. The gospel of Christ always condemns before it releases. Let me put it this way. The first of these eight beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the strongest, or if not one of the strongest biblical statements concerning the great doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Why? Because this statement is a statement of a person's complete inability to please God by any human effort. From the outset of this sermon, it condemns every idea that says, you and I can make it on our own. It condemns that. It's an impossibility. Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the Sermon on the Mount comes to us and says, there is a mountain that you have to scale. The heights you have to climb. But the first thing you must realize, he says, as you look at this mountain that you're told to ascend, is that you can't do it. You can't do it. That you're utterly incapable in and of yourself and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is only proof positive that you don't understand it. My friends, the Sermon on the Mount condemns human effort from the very beginning. Blessed are who? Those who are self-reliant, self-righteous, achieving their own way. No, blessed are the poor, the emptied, the ones who are destitute spiritually. Now, some people have drawn throughout time, they've drawn the conclusion that this beatitude is the idea that the kingdom of God belongs essentially to poor people. Poor people. So all you have to do to enter into the kingdom is to be poor in a material sense. In the Middle Ages, there arose a, uh, a certain terminology that was called poverty mysticism, in which destitution of wealth was elevated to a level of virtue that gave merit to those who were truly poor. But of course, this ignores a much broader teaching in the, in the scriptures concerning the poor. So we're not talking about the approval of poverty for spiritual gain here. Because nowhere else in scripture do we see that being poor is a means of saving grace. The poor man is no, is no nearer to the kingdom of God than a rich man is. There's no merit or advantage of being poor. In fact, poverty does not guarantee spirituality at all. The, the, the quality that Jesus is speaking of, poor in spirit, is not mere materialistic in nature. It's spiritual in nature. 
To be poor in spirit, in biblical terms, means that someone has a poverty of arrogance. They are poor in the area of pride. Which, of course, would have been a pretty stark contrast, pretty, pretty strong way to start a sermon, knowing that within an earshot are men who are living their lives out in arrogance. The scribes and the Pharisees who boasted in their own riches of virtue, their own personal righteousness. And Jesus is saying, it's not you, it's those who are truly worthless, who have nothing going for them spiritually. What Jesus is saying is that such people, like the scribes and Pharisees, do not enter the kingdom of God. Definitely none by his own merit. To be clear, to be poor in spirit, is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. I'll say it again. To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. It's to see yourself as one who is truly lost, hopeless, and helpless. And apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute, no matter what your education is, your wealth, your accomplishments, your social status, religious knowledge, anything you might possess, you are spiritually destitute. This is the point of the first beatitude Christ gives. The poor in spirit of those who recognize their total spiritual poverty and their complete dependence on God. They acknowledge that they have no saving resources in themselves, that all they can do is beg for mercy and beg for grace. They know they have no spiritual merit, they know they can earn no spiritual reward, their pride is gone, their self assurance is gone. They stand empty-handed before God. This is to be poor in spirit. But my friends, human nature is most of the times the exact opposite. What do you and I try to do? Well, the unfortunate reality is that there's something in us still that wants to earn merit for entrance into the kingdom. We feel like we have to do something to earn spiritual favor or merit. We think that we have good works to offer and our pride, frankly, our spiritual pride stands in the way of God's gracious gift. And it's not until we realize we have nothing to offer that we are able to receive the free gift from God. And his confessions, Augustine makes it clear that pride was his greatest barrier to receiving the gospel. He was proud of his intellect, his wealth, his prestige. We're talking about one of the smartest brains, and he was pretty proud about what he had achieved and what he knew. And it wasn't until he recognized that those things were less than nothing Christ could do something for him. Martin Luther's experience was very similar. Before he became a future reformer, this German man entered the monastery at a young age, and his purpose for doing that 
was to earn his own salvation through piety and good works. But very quickly, he experienced a sense of failure, like I'm sure many of us have done. When you try to be good enough for God, you quickly realize, I'm never going to be good enough for God. He quickly found out, he realized his sacrifices, his rituals, even his self-abuse, all of those counted as nothing before God. He could find no way to come to God or to please him on his own. You see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. You talk about a man who had great spiritual knowledge, great power, so to say, religious power, influence in that day. Things, in fact, if there was any man who had the right to feel sufficient in himself or in what he had accomplished spiritually, it's Paul. He actually spells this out for us in Philippians chapter 3. He begins to count on all the things that spiritually were these check marks that would have in his day gone, oh yeah, you've arrived. Oh yeah, you've made it. Oh, good job. You did that too? Wow. Paul, look at all these things you've done. And then Paul turns around in verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, he's talking about what he just described. He says, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. And then he goes on in verse 7, he says, and to do what? And be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. My friends, that then is what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to have an honest look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and you go, compared to that, I have nothing. I am nothing. I've accomplished nothing. I need someone else to do all of it for me. It it, it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance, of self-reliance. It means a realization that we are nothing in the presence of God. Nothing. It is nothing, then, that we can produce. It's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. It's just this tremendous awareness that our utter nothingness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God, this is to be poor in spirit. Jesus puts this beatitude first because humility is the foundation for all other graces, a basic element in the Christian walk. Let me put it this way. Pride, my friends, pride has no part in Christ's kingdom. And until a person surrenders pride, he cannot enter the kingdom. We cannot be filled until we're empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. And we cannot live until we admit we're dead. Let me put it as simply as I can to you. It means this. That if we are truly Christian, we will not rely on our own natural birth or our human our humanity. We will not rely on the fact that we belong to a certain family or families. We'll not boast that we belong to a certain nation or nationality. 
will not have a foolish reliance on our natural temperament or our personality. We won't believe or rely on natural position in life or powers that have been given to us. We won't rely on money or wealth that have been passed down to us or earned. There will be no boasting in education that we received or a particular school or college that we attended. No, in fact, all that is what Paul came to regard as what? Dung. And a hindrance to the gospel in his life. My friends, to enter into the kingdom of God, we must understand that in light of the perfection of God, our virtue is bankrupt. It's giant zeros in our bank account. There's nothing that we can hang our hat on, claim for ourselves when we come face to face with the God of the Bible. We have no merit to offer to God except this, that which has been earned for us by our Savior. That's where your merit is. That's where your worth is found. Not in works of righteousness of your hands, but what Christ has done. And what Jesus does here in this sermon is that he spells out what is the necessary condition for anyone who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's this. You must be poor in spirit. You have to be broken of your pride. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And just a few moments before that, he writes this. He says, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit. Folks, those who come to the Lord with broken hearts, do not leave with broken hearts. Isaiah 57 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever. Listen to this. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to receive the lowly, the spirit of the lowly, and to do what? I love this. And to revive the heart of the contrite. God wants us to recognize our spiritual poverty so that he can make us rich eternally. He wants us to recognize our lowliness so that he can raise us up. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So my friends, let me make an appeal to you tonight. Let me appeal to your heart. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, Jesus offers his righteousness to you, for you. He he knows you have no righteousness of your own. And he stands here tonight before you, offering it to you. Come to Jesus with a broken 
and contrite heart. Come realizing that you have nothing to offer, but that in Jesus, you have nothing to offer, but in Jesus, you'll receive everything. And when the poor in spirit, my friends, come to Jesus for salvation, he promises to give them eternal riches and glory. Those who come to the king in brokenness and in humility inherit his kingdom. God has gladly chosen to give the kingdom to those who humbly come to him and trust him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to close tonight with a stanza. I'm just going to read it to you from the song Rock of Ages, written by Augustus Toplady, that summarizes this beatitude that Christ spells out for us, that reminds us that you and I carry no spiritual merit of ourselves, but that in Christ we find what we need. He says this, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Foul as in disgusting, nasty, helpless, lost. You go to the place and he says this, wash me, my Savior, or I die. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poverty, those who are finding themselves to be poverty spiritually. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we're so grateful that the kingdom of heaven is made available to us, those who stand before you with no good, no merit, no works of righteousness that are going to satisfy your wrath. But in Christ, we have a way. We have the way. May we who are your children, we are kingdom citizens, may we find comfort, motivation to walk in this truth that as we are reminded tonight that we came with nothing but all came from Christ, that we would give you the glory for what you have done in our hearts. And if there is one, Father, who has still been resisting, who is walking in pride, who is, like many before, attempting to find righteousness in themselves, that they would find righteousness in Christ tonight. We praise you for the free gift of Christ and the means of saving grace that we have as we come to you with a broken and contrite spirit. Thank you for your word. Apply it to our hearts for the use of your kingdom in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your attention tonight. Pray God's blessing on you and your family. And that will be dismissed now to our sweets auction. Have a good evening.